I get to turn to Zephaniah chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 20. While you're turning there, you know, almost every sermon prep class I've gone to, somebody says something similar to the first person you have to preach to is yourself. And I got to confess to you, sometimes that's easy to forget, but it wasn't this week. Have any of you ever had gout? A couple? I've got it this week. And gout is another word for feels like somebody's cutting your big toe off with a butter knife. (laughs) And my sermon this week is about rejoicing and rejoicing regardless of our circumstances. So uh, God just, in his sense of humor, thought it would be a great idea to see if I really believed what I was preaching. Just keep that in mind. Gout kind of flares up every now and then. It has a lot to do with diet, so it's my own fault if I got it. But God tests us on these things, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in a little bit. Uh, you know, we're in Zephaniah. We're at the end of Zephaniah, and we're, we're trying to read the Old Testament Uh, by way of learning a little bit more about the character and nature of God, who he is, what his plan of redemption is. It's easy to read the Bible to find out about ourselves, and that will certainly work, but if we want to get the power of the Bible, we want to get the depth of the teaching, we read it to find out about God. And the reason we do that is because God is in the business of molding and shaping us into the likeness of him. So we need to know who he is. And so we've approached Zephaniah, from that perspective. What can we learn about God and how he relates to us and his plan of redemption? And in turn, if we can learn that, then we can learn what he wants to teach us about ourselves. So here's what we've learned in Zephaniah so far. The first thing is we learned that there are earthly consequences for our sin. Now, I want to be very clear about this. We're talking about uh, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Uh, If you have been born again, if you've confessed your sins and turned away from them and accepted him as God's only son and your Lord and Savior, then you're saved. But for those of us who have done that and have been there for a while, we know that that has not yet perfected us. There are still things we do that are ungodly after we're saved. Uh, And there can be earthly consequences for those things. It doesn't mean there's always earthly consequences. It doesn't always mean there's going to be disaster. But there can be earthly consequences for those things. They are not eternal. They don't get us disqualified from heaven. But we need to understand we don't have this free ticket to do anything we want just because we call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. There should be something in us that draws us towards God. There should be something in us that urges us to do godly things, to know more about God, to read his word, to, to understand who he is. Well, are all going to have that in different degrees? That's okay. Uh, if there's a spark inside of you that is pulling you towards God, if there's a little voice in you that whispers in your ear when you're about to do something you know you shouldn't do that says, don't do that, that's the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's the evidence of your salvation. And that's also God's encouragement not to do that uh, because there may be consequences for it. So we found out in our very first installment in Zephaniah that there can be earthly consequences for our sin. What we found out right after that is, is that everyone is subject to the wrath of God. God will pour his wrath out on all sin. 
Now, that sounds like bad news because we just said that we sometimes sin subsequent to our salvation, okay? The good news in that message was that Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior, absorbs that wrath in our place as our substitute. Everybody suffers God's wrath. Those who are in Christ, Jesus suffered it for us. Those who are not in Christ, those who have not recognized him as Lord and Savior, they suffer the wrath. They go into what we call the lake of fire. We're spared from that as believers. So wrath pours out on everybody. If you believe in Jesus Christ, he's absorbed the wrath for you. Now, if we understand all that, we understand the gift we're given in Jesus Christ, we find out that God blesses humility. That should humble us. We haven't done anything to earn that. God just did it because he's God. Jesus Christ just did it because the Father sent him to do that. So that should cause us to be humble. And the opposite of humility is pride. And if we're suffering some pride, from pride, if we're suffering from self-righteousness, if we think we're right and everybody else is wrong, if we're judging other people, well, God's just not going to bless that. God blesses those who are humble, those who bow before him, those who surrender themselves to him and become his likeness here on earth. Uh, so as we understood that, then we moved into the idea that we have to wait upon God. Now, I don't know how you do with this. I'm not the most patient guy in the world. And I have, I have a problem with waiting. I'll look at a situation and I'll say, well, I'm going to pray about this. Okay, I've prayed enough. 30 seconds is enough. I've got to go in and do something, okay? But God is sovereign. God has a plan for each of our lives. We have to let that unfold. We have to accept things as they come. Uh, so we wait upon the Lord. We, we are patient as he works his plan out in our life, in the lives of those around us. What do we do while we wait? Well, that's a big question because we've all got a lot on our dish, but our primary charge is to be messengers of the gospel, not just people who proclaim the, the gospel, not just people who share Jesus Christ with other people, but people who live the gospel, who, leak, who uh, seek for a holy life, people who want to exhibit the presence of Jesus Christ in their lives. So we're not called just to be preachers of the gospel. We're called to be examples of the gospel. What we do while we wait is we portray that gospel. And then last week, we, we asked the question that we all ask at some point, why are we here? What are we doing here? What is God doing in my life? Why did he place me here? What part do I play in the body of Christ? What part do I play in the lives of the people around me? And what we found out is the primary reason that we're here is to worship and serve God, to lift him up in praise, to serve him by serving his body, by serving the people around us. Uh, so our primary reason for existence is to worship and serve God. Now, that's a little bit of a challenge because we live in a world that says it's all about me. That it, 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 all the advertisements and everything, how I can make myself happy, how I can complete myself, to, to, to change that perspective and to change that orientation and say, I'm now going to live for God. He's going to be the most important thing in my life instead of me. That's a little bit of a challenge. And see, so we've got to be careful with that because it creeps into our life in ways we don't understand. But the minute you think that God is there to meet your expectations or to satisfy your desires, you're on the road to making yourself above God. 
So we live him. Uh, he is our highest priority, our fondest desire, and uh, the greatest goal in our lives. That's why we're here. And the great thing about that is when we manage to do that, and this is difficult, it's not easy, when we manage to do that, we find peace. We find joy. We find all the things that we were looking for in all the other places we looked for them except for God. When we find them in God, we have those in truth. So today, as Zephaniah rolled all this stuff out, there was a lot of prophecies about destruction and devastation and all that, and it's a fairly dark book until today. Because today, Zephaniah has good news for each of us who call upon the Lord, okay? And here it is. God rejoices over you individually when you rejoice in him. God rejoices over you when you rejoice in, in him. Now, th this might be a challenge for some too, but uh, this, is, this is what I've been going through this week is I've been trying to rejoice in my gout. Okay, so just, just follow along with me for a few minutes here. Uh, we're calling this sermon Rejoice. And we're going to see how that comes about, how God rejoices over us in our passage today, which gives us three responses to God's loving chastisement. And see, that's what we've been seeing in the first three and a half chapters of Zechariah is God's chastisement. It's falling upon those people who reject him, and it is absolutely devastating. But it's also falling upon his people. And we, we talked a little bit about why it's falling on his people, primarily to draw them closer to him. But what is the response supposed to be? And that's what we're going to look at. So we're going to see... Three responses to God's loving chastisement. What we do shows up in verse 14. Why we do it shows up in verse 15. And what God does shows up in verses 16 through 20. So let's take a look at what we do. And again, now this has to be taken in the context that the first three and a half chapters of, of Zechariah was filled with all this chastisement, with all of this judgment, with all of this wrath, it was a tough book, okay? And it's falling on, on the pagans, and it's falling on God's people, and it's designed to punish the pagans, but it's, it brings God's people closer. So with that in mind, looking at this chastisement and how it's supposed to bring us closer, how are we supposed to respond to this? What do we do when hardship comes into our life? What do we do when things don't turn out the way we expected them to turn out? What do we do with our disappointment? What do we do with our pain? What do we do with the, the lack, the, when, when all of our dreams have been shattered and we're kind of standing there and wondering what just happened? How do we respond when God allows that to happen in our lives? And we get the answer here in verse 14. God says through Zechariah, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now listen, there are four what we call imperatives in here. There are four things to do. There are four commandments. There are four directives on how to respond to these hard times that might have appeared in the lives of the people of Judah. How do we respond to the hard times that uh, will appear in our lives? And the first thing we're told to do is to sing aloud. And this is corporate. 
This is, this is to all of God's people. Nobody is exempt. It's for everyone. So hard times come. What do you do? You sing. You sing. Sing what? I, sing a doxology. Sing a song that you heard in, in, in church. Sing some Christian song that you got off the radio as long as it's Christ-centered. Uh, but sing. Let your heart begin to praise and, and worship God. And we do this individually and we do it collectively. You see, that's why when we come to, to Sunday morning, when we come to the worship service, we start in singing. It's a first step of drawing close to God. It's a first step in responding to all that stuff that's going on outside our doors. And God gives us this, and he gives us songs that we can sing so that we can take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on him. When we do this corporately, we come in here to focus on him, to praise and worship him, and to receive what he has for us in the preaching and the reading of his word. So the first thing we do is we sing aloud. The second thing we do is we shout, and we do it aloud. Now, that doesn't mean that we all just stand here and start screaming at the tops of our voices. We start proclaiming. We begin to proclaim what? His word. We begin to proclaim his gospel. We do it when we're together. We do it when we're apart. We do it especially when we're out there. We're not shy about it. It comes with some volume. It comes with some boldness. And we may not feel bold, but we've got the Spirit in us. So we sing, we worship, we proclaim. And what else do we do? Well, we rejoice. And this is kind of kind of neat. Uh, because we look at it, and it literally, if we want to make a literal English translation, it would be that we act glad. Okay? I'm not talking about putting a smiley face on things. I'm not talking about pretending everything's great when they're not. But I'm saying that if we sing and we begin to proclaim, their gladness will enter into our heart. Now, here's the way the Jews understood this term. Okay? When we begin to express gladness towards God, it gladdens God's heart. Have you ever imagined that you could do something that might gladden God's heart? that you have a pathway to God's heart and can have that intimate of a contact with him? Do you see how special this, this whole chain of events is? Do you see how miraculous this is? We sing, we shout, we rejoice, and we exult. We express joy. Now, you can't turn these around because one leads to the other. By the time we have sung with abandon, by the time we have proclaimed his word with boldness, by the time we have rejoiced and taken joy in, in, in what God is doing and touched God's heart, we, we begin to be infused with joy. And all these things we do, not in what our situations are or whether or not we like the song or it's got a good beat or whether or not we really feel that happy when we walk in here, when we're doing all of these things because of what God is doing in our lives, then we begin to take joy in all the Lord has given us. The psalmist knew this. He wrote in Psalm 32, Verse 11, he said, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So our reaction 
to hardship. Our reaction to any circumstance that we're in. Be careful with this because this is not just something we do on Sunday morning. This is something that should permeate our lives. This is something that should characterize the way we approach every situation we're in. Our reaction is to sing, to shout, to rejoice, to exult. And you see, if, if we can manage to do that, if we can understand the supernatural nature of that process and how it touches God's heart and how we're one with him and thereby it touches our heart as well, then there's a blessing in there. There's a blessing in every, any and every circumstance we have in our lives. Now, that's a little difficult sometimes to absorb because some of the circumstances we're in don't seem like blessings. Let's be honest about it. Some of the situations that we find ourselves in are really difficult for us, really hard, and sometimes painful. God says it doesn't have to be painful. If you will do these things, we can, we can bring peace into your life. We can bring joy into your life. Now, that's not just so that we have a way through our hard times. It's also there so that the people around us can see how we react to these situations. We become a living, breathing testimony to the presence of God in our lives. And some of you have experienced this before. You've gone through a hard time. You face it in a godly fashion. You have given thanks to God. Maybe you didn't feel real thankful, but you've, you've offered up this sacrifice of thanks and say, God, I don't understand what's going on. I want to be thankful in all things. This one doesn't make me feel particularly thankful, but you told me to do it, so I'm going to give you thanks for this. And people will look at you and go, how did you do that? I could never have done that. Tell me, where do you get your strength? <laughs> you know, I didn't do anything on my own. I just believed in what God said. God told me to be thankful in all things, and I've got Jesus Christ inside of me, and that's where the strength came from. So we become these billboards. We become exemplars of God's grace and God's mercy. And we become those people that are living out the gospel in our lives. So, so this is all, it, it's all great. It's testimony to, to others. It's, it, it will bring us peace. It will bring us a way through some hard times. But we need to understand God is not, promise, not asking us for blind obedience here. He's not saying, just do what I tell you to do and don't ask me any questions. There's a good reason for us to do these things he's called us to do. So why do we do it? It's in verse 15. Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Watch this. All of this gloom and doom that we've seen in, Ze in Zephaniah, all of this judgment, all of the pain of life, all of the consequences, the eternal consequences for our sins, have been removed. They're gone. We've been delivered from them. We no longer have to worry about what's going to happen or where we're going to end up. We're promised a place in heaven. We're promised a room in the mansion of our God uh, and Father in heaven. We're promised that he's going to come back for us. So the, if we understand that, if we understand that, the things that we're going through begin to pale a little bit in comparison. They begin to, to fade a little bit into the background. 
So we have the promises of God that he's going to come back and take us home. And we also have this promise that our enemies are going to be scattered. The people that oppose us are going to be decimated. And all this is going to happen. We know it's going to happen. Uh, we know that it's not just an empty promise because the Lord lives in the middle of us. Now watch this. For Zephaniah, the Lord lived among them. And that was a blessing beyond comprehension. Zephaniah didn't know the whole story. So they had God with them. Now, they were slipping up a little bit. Uh, they were not paying attention to him. They had turned their backs on him. Uh, but God was still among them. And God is now saying, look, all of your punishment is going to be removed because I'm in the middle of you. Let's take that promise to you and me, those who have called upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God isn't living in the middle of us. He's living in us. This is something that would have blown Zephaniah's mind. God living in me? How could that happen? I'm a wretch. I'm a lost person. I'm filthy. Zephaniah knew that. But God decided that he would come and live in us regardless of the fact that we had sinned, regardless of the fact that we had offended him. So with God in us, and the punishment being alleviated, don't we have an opportunity to rejoice? You got to ask yourself, what situation in life trumps God living in me? What circumstances do I go through that are more important than Jesus Christ, my creator, living in me? What is happening to me right now that makes me worry about where I'm going to be and what's going to happen if the Lord is in me and the Holy Spirit is indwelling in me? You understand the magnitude of this promise? God in us, the hope and the glory, it's absolutely incredible. And because God is eternal and because he's never changing, he's not going away. We can't chase them out. Jesus said, none can snatch me from, from uh, none can, nothing can snatch you out of, out of my hand. Nothing can separate you from the love of the Father. So he's here, and if we understand that, the eternal nature of who Christ is, his indwelling spirit in us, we understand that all those promises that he's made to us are already fulfilled. I mean, yes, we're working in this timeline. God doesn't respect time the same way we do. God can make the promises because he's already there in the end. He already sees the work of Christ done in our lives, even as we're working this out and going through the process of our sanctification, of our being made holy. It's an ironclad promise. Our enemies are scattered. God lives among us. God lives on us. So when we rejoice in him the way he tells us to, when we understand why we rejoice in him, because he's in us and owns us, when we do that with the right, now, now we've got to be real careful with this, and I'll tell you, I went through this this week myself, because early on I thought, okay, I've got this gout, I can barely walk, I'll rejoice in God and he'll fix it. I mean, if I do that, then he's obligated to fix the gout. 
So, okay, thank you, God. I'm going to sing a song. This is going to be fantastic. It still hurts. What's going on? Okay, so we've got to be real careful with our heart motivation. I, I mean, we can't use God to satisfy our expectations. We can't use him to meet our desires. So when we, when we turn towards him and we sing this song to him, when, when we rejoice in him, when we exult in him, uh, when we shout, uh, it's because of who he is, not because of who we are or what we need. So when we do these things with the right motivation, a motivation and a heart focused upon him, look what God does in verse 16 through 20. Now, if you haven't been encouraged yet, this will get you, okay? On verse 16, it says, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Okay, so God is saying through Zephaniah that he's going to take away fear. He's going to take away the apprehension. He's going to take away confusion, disappointment. He's going to take away pain. He's going to pay, take away the, the, the shattered feeling over our dreams. Uh, all those things are going to disappear. He says, let not your hands grow weak. And uh, now what the Jew would have hear, heard here is don't feel like you're powerless. Don't feel like you're weak. Don't feel like you're discouraged. God is in you. God is working in you. He has a plan for your life. Uh, he's going to remove all those things, all those feelings of powerlessness, all those feelings of pain. How is he going to do that? Well, it's a reminder in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Now, I like that. The Lord is among you. The Lord is in you. He's the one who saves. And watch this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Have you ever thought that God would rejoice over you? Have you ever thought that God is sitting in his throne room and as you turn your attention towards him, he begins to take joy in what you're doing. Now, we've already talked that you can touch God's heart by being obedient to what he says. Now, you can cause God to celebrate over you. Look what else he says. He will rejoice over you with gladness. The same gladness of heart we were talking about. He will quiet you by his love. He'll calm you. He'll give you peace. He'll give you that, that abiding joy deep down inside. He will exult over you with loud singing. So you've already got this picture of God rejoicing over you. And now God is exulting over you, taking joy in you and singing. I want to hear that song. I want to hear what God's singing. I want to experience that incredible unity that I can have with him as I sing to him and he sings back to me. When we put him first, when we treat him like he's our highest priority, when we decide to celebrate regardless of what our situation is, when we are thankful in all things, Paul says, when we're content in all circumstances, he says, God sings with us. Is that enough to wash away the blues? <laughs> 
is that enough to cause us to look at our circumstances a little bit differently? Do you see why Paul says that I look around me and everything I've gained, everything I've done is garbage compared to the glory to come. Paul knew what he had in his relationship with the Father, and he knew that nothing on earth could rob him of that. And so he treated all things on earth as if they were secondary. And the things that God had told him to do were primary. He never allowed the situation to overcome his knowledge of who God was and how he related to him. And, and I got to tell you something. You know Paul's history. Paul had a lot of people that hurt him. Abandoned by the Sanhedrin. Kicked out of nearly every town he went to. Paul suffered a lot of pain, both physical and spiritual. And Paul, at the end of his career, saying, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Give thanks in all things. That's what this passage is about. Being thankful as I'm limping around with gout. (laughs) Being thankful as you carry the burdens that you've been carrying for so long. Being thankful as God reveals to you the bitterness and anger that is standing between you and hearing God sing over you. Ah. God says when we do these things, he saves us. He rejoices over us. He makes our heart glad. Remember verse 14, we make his heart glad. Do you see as we we honor him, as we make his heart glad, he inhabits and changes our heart and it becomes glad. He quiets us, he calms us, and he exalts over us. Then in verse 18, he speaks directly to us, to his people. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. He's talking about, I'll gather those who who grieve over sin, who grieve over the ungodly things that are happening. And and he'll bring them together so that they'll no longer suffer reproach. He's going to remove grief. He's going to remove sorrow. He's going to remove guilt. And behold, at that time... I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And Basically what God is saying is for all those people that have rejected me, all those people who have rejected you, I will vindicate you. I will justify you. He, now, very careful with this one because he doesn't tell us to do it ourselves. Vengeance is his, not ours. As we look upon him instead of our circumstances as we rejoice in him instead of whatever we're going through God vindicates God justifies God makes us examples of who godly people are and he begins changing our testimony and impressing that upon the people around us and then we have in verse 20 this is beautiful at that time I will bring you in at that time I'll I'll bring you closer to me. At that time, I'll bring you home. At that time, I'm going to give you all of the peace and security 
that you ever wanted in your entire life. As we do these things together, I will bring you in. When I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. All that happens when we are diligent to give him thanks and give him praise in all circumstances. So there's our, our three responses to God's loving chastisement. What do we do? In verse 14, we give thanks. We, we rejoice in him. Why do we do it? And, and this is important. We do it not because we want our situation resolved to our favor. We do it because he's in us. Because we have this intimate relationship with the Father. Because he has already saved us. He's going to come back and take us home, but he's already saved it. We do it because we're grateful to him, because we're thankful for what he's done for us. And what God does when we do that is he rejoices over us. He celebrates over us. He sings over us. God rejoices over you when you rejoice in him. How does that affect us this afternoon? I'll tell you. What it means is that we need to learn to be thankful for what we have rather than disappointed for what we don't have. We need to learn to be thankful in the middle of our trial because God is doing something. Isn't that what Zephaniah was all about? God comes to his people and says, you know, you need some work. You haven't, you haven't been doing real well at this. I'm going to punish those people that are influencing you, that reject me. And what I'm about to do to you looks like punishment. But if you read to the end of this very short letter, you'll find out that it's all intended to bring you closer to me. So whatever you're going through today, God is designed to bring you closer to him, to bring you into an intimate type of relationship that might be new to you. We want to see his face. Here's a way to get closer. Here's a way to begin to take joy in that day that we will see him face to face. Meanwhile, here's a way for us to have the strength and the peace to get through what he's given us today.